in an experiment. Yeah, we didn't know yet. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Hello and welcome to the Nature Podcast. This week, we'll be finding out how giant engineering projects could help slow down sea level rise. And we'll be hearing how diamonds are helping to increase the resolving power of NMR. This is the Nature Podcast for the 15th of March 2018. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Here on the Nature Podcast, we talk quite a lot about climate change. Agreed, but it is quite important. True. Well, we've got another climate change-related story today, but this one is rather unusual. Rather than focusing on preventing the planet from warming up, today we're talking about how to slow down sea level rise. There's a proposal from a group of scientists writing in a comment piece in Nature this week that one solution could be massive engineering projects in Antarctica. I got in touch with one of the scientists proposing this. John Moore is a glaciologist who knows Antarctica pretty well. Working in Antarctica, the first thing I would say that you notice is the silence. It is so quiet. There's no cars. There's no wind rustling through trees. And if you look around, of course, you see no evidence of humanity existence at all, except the tent that you're living in. So it feels like this pristine environment is one of the last places you'd want to be doing big construction projects in. But these glaciers and ice shelves are already under threat or disappearing, right? The northern parts of the Antarctic Peninsula are where the ice shelves have started to collapse in the last uh, 20 years or so. So yeah, what used to be a solid ice shelf, perhaps 200 metres thick, is essentially open water or covered by just a metre or two of sea ice. And that brings us to the problem, which is that all this melting ice is what's actually making the sea levels rise. At the moment, it's not making a very big contribution to sea level rise, but it's expected that Antarctica will become more and more significant and even dominant through the rest of this century to global sea level rise. And we're talking about really big predictions for the amount of sea level rise. So maybe on average a metre over the next 100 years, and then obviously floods become more common too. So that's going to be somewhat problematic. Without any adaptation measures to avoid flooding, uh, the damage would run into trillions of dollars per year. More realistically, with adaptation uh, done along coastlines, building walls, dikes, etc., Uh, hardening cities and vulnerable infrastructure such as nuclear power stations, that's expected to be of the order of uh, perhaps 10 to $50 billion per year by the end of the century. So I guess that's the current um, assumption. Um, What I would assume that we're going to do about sea level rise is, okay, Ryan, let's try and protect the coastal cities. Let's kind of do what we can um, as it happens. But uh, your comment piece is uh, sort of suggesting an alternative route um, to try and preemptively stop some of that sea level rise. So one idea is simply to build a wall uh, so that you actually physically stop the warm water from being able to approach the ice. The other part is to try to stabilise the ice shelves by giving them some land to make contact with. And what that does is that the ice shelf 
grinds up against this little island that we built and uh, very much stabilizes the flow. It means that the ice shelf itself is much less vulnerable to disintegrating. The third idea is a little bit different. We're taking these large ice streams that are flowing very, very quickly on a thin layer of melt water. So if you can dry the bottom of the bed of the glacier, it will increase the friction and it will slow the glacier down, which in turn will mean that there's less melt water produced because it's sliding a lot slower. And uh, as you slow the glacier down, it is carving less ice into the ocean. All three of those ideas sound just kind of huge. By definition, geoengineering is not small scale. But in terms of the uh, comparison to existing civil engineering projects, it is not total science fiction. The kinds of numbers that you get are either of the order of very large engineering projects like the Suez Canal or an order of magnitude or so larger than that. Now, despite that sounding very expensive, uh, you argue that it's still actually going to be much cheaper than the total future cost of protecting all the coastlines and, and power stations and things. But are people actually going to be willing to do it? What's been the general reaction to these ideas? Whenever I talk about it with, with my colleagues, the initial reaction is, is absolute horror at the idea of going to Antarctica and doing this large construction project, which would be certainly much bigger than anything going on in Antarctica at the present. But when people actually consider what the alternatives are, then you have to make a balance and try to figure out, well, you know, perhaps you have to risk damaging some comparatively small region, but to try to preserve the bigger ice sheet and the bigger uh, global sea level. And say we manage it, how much time does that actually give us? It depends, of course, on how much warming of the atmosphere is taking place at the same time. So this is not an alternative. I can't emphasise that too strongly. This is not an alternative to finding alternatives to burning fossil fuels. That has to be done as well. But our simulations at the moment suggest that we could delay sea level rise for perhaps two, three hundred years by making these kinds of constructions in the West Antarctica. That was John Moore of the Beijing Normal University and the University of Lapland. You can read the comment piece to find out more about how to geoengineer a glacier at nature.com forward slash news. Later in the show, we'll be learning about the state of Russian science. That's coming up in the news chat. Next, though, we're joined by Emily Bannum for a quick update on the latest science. It's time for the research highlights. Robots have already gained some remarkable abilities. They can swim like octopuses and wriggle like worms. And now, feelings are within their grasp. The feeling of touch, that is. Researchers from Harvard University made rubber robotic fingers infused with sensors made from a conductive gel that collects data from whatever surface they come into contact with. The team used three of these flexible fingers to make a soft hand that could hold a ball and report its temperature and texture. Soft and supple sensors could help give future robots a real feel for their surroundings. Get hold of the full paper in Advanced Materials. 
wild petunia pips have performed the fastest pirouette ever observed in nature. While the flower is already famous for launching its seeds at great speeds, it's only now that they've been caught on high-speed cameras. When flung from the flower's fruit, the seeds rotate up to 100,000 times a minute. That's about as fast as a dentist's drill. Shaped like wagon wheels, the seeds spin in an upright position, but rotate backwards as they fly forwards. This creates an aerodynamic effect that propels the pips up, up and away, sending some seeds soaring a whopping seven metres away from the plant. Catch this research in the Journal of the Royal Society Interface. Ben, I have something to ask you. It's been something I've been thinking about for a long time. Oh, yeah? Well, look, we've been working together for six months now and, well, we just have a really great time. Yeah, I mean, we have a great time, definitely. So... <sighs> Wait, is, is that a diamond? Benjamin Thompson. No, not about this at all. My wife is going to be so angry. Will you image some nanoscale chemical structures with me? What? This little diamond is full of quantum defects called NV centres, and Ron Walsworth and his team from Harvard have been using it for nuclear magnetic resonance imaging. It's really cool. I thought you might want to have a look. <sighs> I mean, yeah, that does sound interesting and exactly what I thought you were going to ask. So how does this diamond magnetic resonance thing work then? Ah, well, Noah Baker has been talking to Ron Walsworth to find that out. If scientists want to study something, they need to measure it. And there's a whole host of different things to measure. Mass, density, charge, so on. When measuring really tiny things, one of the properties that scientists use is magnetic fields. You see, all matter is made up of molecules which are made up of atoms and inside each of those is a nucleus. Now these nuclei can have a quantum property called spin and associated with that is a magnetic field. Essentially, nuclei can act like tiny magnets and by measuring their magnetic field, scientists can get a picture of what's there and what it's doing. The process is called nuclear magnetic resonance or NMR. I called up Ron Woolworth who told me some more. Okay, so NMR is a commonly used technique. The information you can get out of measuring the magnetic fields that are emitted by these little spinning nuclei uh, is remarkable. You can learn a lot about the structure of molecules and their behavior, their chemical um, properties, etc. And so it's a very it's become a, over the last many decades a very widely used tool. It's also the basis of MRI. And so in this paper, you're investigating a new type of sensor, um, one that can be used to detect these magnetic fields, uh, sort of a new way to do NMR. I guess first, what's wrong with the current system or why does it need improving? Yeah, so I mean, the, the wonder of NMR and MRI comes from the fact that, uh, partially comes from the fact that these magnetic fields that are emitted by these little nuclei interact with matter weakly and can pass out uh, let's say, of a sample or a body into uh, a coil that is traditionally used, a uh, coil of wire to detect the signal. But that weak interaction has meant that when you get to very small quantities of, of matter, at the, let's say at the scale of an individual biological cell, there's too little signal being emitted for conventional technology to be able to detect the signal. So you kind of things got too small to be observed. So what we do is we're using... Uh, a new way to detect a signal that actually provides a better sensitivity at the smaller scale. Okay, so what is this new detector that you're using to replace coils of wire? We use a particular type of quantum defects in diamond. Tell me about these defects then, and how can they be used to measure magnetic fields? So two neighbouring carbon atoms are replaced in the diamond by a nitrogen atom 
and a missing carbon atom known as a vacancy. And this little so-called nitrogen vacancy quantum defect or color center, which can give a red color to diamond, also has remarkable properties. When illuminated with, with light, with visible light, it will radiate in the red, and the intensity of the red light it gives off is a strong function of the local magnetic field. Okay, so each little NV uh, defect inside of diamond is itself a little magnificent atomic scale sensor of magnetic fields. Okay, so you put your sample on a bit of diamond containing these NV centers, you shine a light on the NV centers so that they fluoresce, but the light that they emit will be modified in a specific way by the tiny magnetic fields of the nuclei in the sample. So it's kind of like the sample is leaving an imprint in the light, and you can look at that light and work out what left the imprint. Exactly right. If you look at the signal, the red fluorescence, as a function of time, it carries the imprint of the NMR signal from the sample on it. And so we've essentially... uh, in some ways, converted the NMR signal into an optical signal, and the time variations of that optical signal carry the molecular information that's in the NMR signal there. And we can do this with this high spectral resolution, this high spatial resolution, and non-invasively. So so give me some numbers here. What what is the increase in resolution you've managed to get with this new system that you're working with? So for looking at molecules outside the diamond like we're doing here it's about a two order of magnitude increase a hundredfold increase in spectral resolution what do you want to unleash your discovery on do you have anything in particular you want to look at now i suppose so we're not ready to begin solving biological problems and chemical problems yet but the problems that we want to address are things like uh, being able to non-invasively because the diamond sits outside of cells non-invasively monitor chemical Uh, reactions that are going on within living cells. We'd also like to be able to watch, not just in biological cells, but let's say uh, small chemical reactions that are relevant for developing pharmaceuticals, et cetera, that can occur on these small length scales and really be able to watch that non-invasively. So that's the goal. And what have you got left to do to get to that place? Yeah, so we now have the spectral resolution. Great. The thing we're missing is enough sensitivity to be able to monitor these processes in real time. The data that's in our paper, you know, one of these individual um, high spectral resolution results maybe took 10 hours of signal averaging. That's too long. If we want to be able to watch real-time phenomena, we need to be able to do it in real time. It strikes me that, you know, on the very base of it, the the ingredients that you're using in this this technology is quite simple. You're using laser light, you're using uh, a diamond containing these NV centers. How much is there that you can tweak and modify to improve these things that you're talking about? You're right. You might think, hmm, okay, if it's so simple, there isn't much left to improve, is there? Well, yes and no. The sensitivity of the NVs to signals are are strongly dependent upon what's going on within the diamond. And the diamond has lots of unwanted impurities inside of it that we and others are working on ways to reduce and to control. It can also come from collecting more and more of the light that the NVs are emitting. We're not doing an optimal job yet. And and since that carries the information, we want to get all those photons the NVs are emitting, and we're working on that. Lastly, we can boost the signal from the signal source. The the little nuclear spins that are the magnetic generating the magnetic fields in the sample, right now we operate at a kind of medium strength magnetic field and there's no reason we can't operate at a much higher field and the higher the field the stronger the signal they give off. That was Ron Walsworth from Harvard University in the USA speaking with Noah Baker. You can read more about the study over at nature.com forward slash nature. 
Finally this week, it's the News Chat, and I'm joined in the studio by Ewan Calloway, one of the reporters here at Nature. Thanks for joining us, Ewan. Yeah, sure. Well, our first story today, we are going to head to Russia. Uh, This Sunday sees the country's next presidential election, and I think it seems more likely than not that Vladimir Putin is going to win. Um, But now some researchers are hoping that this will represent maybe the ideal time for the country to get behind science in a way that maybe hasn't happened for a while. Yeah. So this story comes from uh, my colleague, Quirin Schirmeyer, who who covers Russia from from Germany. Um, And his sense in, in reporting this story is, yes, Putin is all but, you know, a dead cert, he's going to be reelected. And he's starting to talk about science and innovation like he actually cares, um, like, you know, this is something he might actually improve and, and work on in his term. Since the, the fall of the Soviet Union, there's been a long-term decline in Russian science, uh, which used to be really quite prominent, especially in, in physical sciences. And, yeah, the, the, the question remains, is this talk, you know? So looking into this a bit, though, it doesn't seem that maybe things are as bleak as as some people are painting. Certainly, uh, investment has increased over recent years. Yeah, there's been slight increases in in investment, though, you know, it's not clear whether it's it's really making a difference. Um, I think... One of the problems that Quirin writes about and which he's written about extensively in the past is that in, in Russia, at Russian science institutes, there's a kind of an embedded old guard that is very resistant to change, resistant to having kind of Western style uh, science institutes that, you know, that are quite nimble and flexible and reward excellence. And so reformers in Russian science, are, I think, are finding it, it really hard to uh, to put this money to good use, I guess, I guess would, would say that you could be plowing money into a rotten system. So I think that that's a real lingering concern here. Mm, which begs the questions then, I guess, what reforms are needed as we, as we move forward? They really center on, I think, these institutes affiliated with the, the Russian Academy of Sciences. There are more than 700 of them. And an evaluation that was completed in, in January found that like a full one quarter of them are really underperforming. Uh, they're not putting out papers. These papers aren't getting cited and kind of other metrics. And, and science, as we know, is very much a collaborational thing. And it, and it doesn't exist within a, a bubble. What does Russian science need to do maybe to, to continue collaborating and to, and to reach out in the world? And, and is it already doing so? Well, I think Quirin's sense in, in reporting this story was that a lot of the problems with Russian science and a lot of you know areas for improvement are are internal. But simmering beneath all of this, of course, is Russia's role as an increasingly isolated state, at least vis-a-vis the West. Um, you know, the country's annexation of Crimea, its uh, its role in the Syrian civil war. Uh, you know, its allegations of tilting elections have not won it favors uh, with the West, to, to put it lightly. And I think there's there's concern that this could isolate Russian science further. It's not having an effect so far. Quirin reports uh, Russia is still part of ITER, which is the the experimental fusion reactor in the south of France, and they're still a part of other big infrastructure, and, and smaller collaborations are happening. But I think there's a real concern that, like Russia itself, Russian science could grow isolated from the rest of the world. All right, well, next we're going to take a bit of a sidestep, and we're going to talk about AI in healthcare, uh, and in particular sort of the, the ethics around patient data usage. Um, before we start, though, you and maybe, you know, you can tell our listeners, what are some of the advantages of AI being used in, in healthcare? 
Yeah, this is based on a story from my colleague, Amy Maxman, who's based in San Francisco, which, as you know, is AI central. And, you know, we've been hearing a lot of news about, you know, Google DeepMind developing uh, AI that can, you know, beat the world's best Go players and, and things like that. But I think a lot of people hope that the, the you know, a similar approach, deep learning, can be used uh, for, for uh, other applications. And one that we're hearing a lot about is in, is in biomedical research, especially in uh, looking at images, whether it's of, you know, cancer biopsies or brain scans or something like that, and picking out patterns that are not necessarily obvious um, uh, either to the naked eye or with other other types of uh, computer algorithms used to, to find patterns in them. Yeah, and I think we had an example last year we covered on the podcast about uh, about skin cancer being identified by, by a computer, by an AI brain. But there is a worry that uh, the people, sort of patients in particular, can be disempowered by these big kind of faceless corporations having access to their data. I think the real challenge with deploying AI and deep learning uh, with medical data, like medical imaging data, is the data itself. Because these these algorithms, I think they really thrive. And the only way they get good is by being trained on lots and lots of data. Uh, and the, I guess this creates a, a challenge with healthcare systems, with healthcare data, where it's often siloed at different hospitals or you know GP clinics and and things like that. And so there's this issue of how do we uh, safely share this data to improve these these algorithms. Doctors don't want to go sharing you know their patients' data with with a corporation uh, if they if they can't be confident that it's absolutely secure. Yeah, and so Amy's story is looking at something slightly different and uh, about a different technology that's being used to maybe secure this data. You know, talk about buzzwords. Um, you know, we've got we've got AI, we've got deep learning. The next one is blockchain, which is a, it's a it's a term that I have personally struggled to understand. But what I do know is this: it's a cryptography technology that is the basis for cryptocurrencies such such as Bitcoin. Yes, but rather than being used for sort of currency movement. This one's involved in, in patient data. The hope is, is that to solve this problem, people are using blockchain technology to be able to share large quantities of uh, private medical data without worrying that it's going to fall in, into the wrong hands. So you can get improvements, uh, I think, in, in, in AI alg- algorithms uh, without compromising patient confidentiality. Thanks, Ewan. For more on these stories, don't forget to head over to nature.com slash news. We've also got some breaking news, listeners, which is that Stephen Hawking, one of the most influential science figures of his generation, has passed away at the age of 76. Head over to nature.com slash collections slash Hawking, where you'll find our obituary and a collection of news articles about his life and work. We've also got a video about three of his most influential publications, which you can find at youtube.com slash nature video channel. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Shamini Bundell.